This is Subjects in Process, a podcast where we explore the limits of our knowledge, try to understand the things we take for granted, and work to see things from new points of view. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jonathan. today uh we're just kind of uh taking a bit of a slow roll on a lot of our intensive topics that we've been covering so far and uh want to talk a little bit about our name of our podcast subjects in process and uh maybe remind yourselves a bit of what we want to do here uh yeah. talk a little bit about some ideas we have for going forward but um uh, yeah. maybe maybe try to address think of any philosophical notes that we can find in what we're hoping to accomplish through our conversations yeah totally and and i think uh one of the things that uh is driving us doing a couple of sort of one-off episodes as opposed to these long multi-episode uh <laughs> meandering uh conversations that we've been having uh is is that we're we're thinking of trying out a different way of doing the podcast uh, entirely, um, because I think for me I I find that I listen to an episode uh, after it's been recorded and I think, huh, I wonder I, why I didn't bring such and such up, you know, like you totally. or I will say something and then I'll say, okay, that's fine, but then I wonder why we didn't talk about this other thing. Um, I don't know if totally. you found that. I have, yeah, I've definitely found that. And, um, and I think we did want to like, we or even originally, we had the idea of finishing with questions that we wanted right. to answer kind of recognizing that we were always kind of, uh, we weren't necessarily getting to answers and trying to be clear with ourselves about um, what we didn't know. And for sure, when I listened to the podcast, I mean, we, it, we struggle to articulate that. And we just really, I mean, we tend to get a bit lost in conversation. So that's true. Uh, yeah. Makes it fun though for us. It, it does. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's good. that's, that's another I think we one had some good singers wanna... last, last time. So I was, I was feeling good about some of our pie jokes. Oh yeah. Yeah. The uh, immaterial pie, hopefully yeah. fitting in the mailbox. Yeah. Was I that last episode? That was last episode. Oh, I know. Yeah, very good. I know very we're good. caught up now. So, um, so yeah, we, we were thinking, We'll do a couple of one-offs because what we'd like to try to do is start kind of recording them, recording what our kind of discussions in parts. So we'd have a beginning part uh, that is recorded one week, and that kind of raises some of the questions that we have and talks about some of those issues. And then we'd like to record the, the next part maybe a little while later so that we can actually go back and look at some of the questions that got raised and and think about it a little bit more than just um off the cuff uh although it's still probably going to be fairly off the cuff yeah yeah no and i'm i'm excited about the idea just being more clear about the questions that are raised and then just trying to maybe you know uh, scope what we're talking about and see if we can find some answers or at least new questions right if we can yeah. kind of move ourselves along yeah which i think is actually a great segue to the topic for today which yeah. is uh, what's in a name? What's in a name? Exactly. And so, uh, Jeff, do you want to tell us a bit about where our name comes from? Sure. Um, I think, I don't know if you still have the list of all the different names that we had in mind um, somewhere, but I, I thought there were a bunch of really interesting ones. It's kind of hard to come up with a podcast name, I find, because you just feel like you should change it the minute that you stick it into the podcast platform oh, or whatever I've, you know i've i've been a part of a number of groups that attempted to name themselves and it is a long and painful process as somebody who yes overthinks a lot of those kinds of decisions so. i i like uh the book club that that you're part of and that i'm on the i lurk on the whatsapp for it have you guys all moved and that's why there's no action happening on the whatsapp anymore no, no, we're still on the WhatsApp. I just, we're, the book club is not very active because okay. of recent uh, events. I, I don't know okay. if you know, over the last year, 
Yes. The end. Oh, wait. Yeah. Wait. There was something that happened, right? It was uh, the global pandemic. That's what it was. That's the one. Okay. Yes. That's the one. Oh, um, dear. That's... But uh, I, I liked the book club because you guys would change the name of the uh, WhatsApp group every single ah, time a new book was chosen. So That's right. That was fun, actually. But we are stuck with our podcast name because right. we have a Gmail account now that has At- has it. And, and, an- and- and I, yeah. and I, and I, I like, like it. it. Oh, I yeah. like it. I yeah, like it. I sure. Think. It's good. Yeah. So subjects in process, subject in process. Uh, for, for me, it was a term that I first encountered uh, when I was in my fourth year of my undergrad. And I was yeah. doing a uh, honors tutorial with uh, Christopher Bracken, who both of us have had as a prof. He's one of my favorite profs. Uh, he was super formative for me. Very unique guy. Uh, I have both of his books. Uh, I've read part of one of his books. And so um, Jeff was an English major and I was a philosophy major. And so he was an English teacher and, um, but of course taught theory, which yes, is total. Uh, Jeff, I maybe you can even say what theory is. I would say theory is English, English, philosophy, English departments, philosophy. That's what right. I would say. Yeah. That's a very, that's a, I, I, I've heard it said it's English profs trying to be philosophers which oh. is less uh, <laughs> charitable um but yeah i mean uh for people who aren't familiar with it uh literary theory is is kind of a it it, it starts in criticism it starts with people like northrop fry and and earlier than that you know people with like plato and i mean there's all sorts of people who've since since the beginning of writing have sort of thought critically about what does it mean to write? What does it mean to read? Um, and those kinds of questions. But more recently, kind of in the last 50 years or so, um, there's been a move towards a more, um, yeah, philosophically informed, uh, sociologically informed uh, kind of literary theory, where you are approaching texts, looking at them from, mm-hmm. a, from a, a sort mm-hmm. of meta perspective. Right. Like what is asking, not just like what is being said in this book or what is the author trying to say, but saying what is an author? What does author mean? What does text mean? Right. What's the difference between a text and a work? Um, And starting to ask some of those questions at an even higher level and trying to understand what's the connections between the way that we think about texts and the way that we think about being and the way that we think about, um, you know, life in the world or politics or, or whatever. And so um, something, I mean, literary theory is something that I've always loved. It's a really seductive kind of uh, discipline. That's what one of my other profs always said. It's, you know, it's exciting because it's, it feels almost mystical, a lot of it, right? I do think it's, there's something Gnostic about it because you feel like you're accessing the secret knowledge, right? And you end up scratching into Marxism and psychoanalysis and all these sort of adjacent fields whose uh, methodologies get co-opted by uh, readers, by kind of literary critics to say, okay, um, if we take something like a psychoanalytic typology, um, you know, something that maybe Freud's idea of uh, the repression or of the Oedipal complex or something like that, do you see the same kinds of uh, structures that he pulls out of the psyche in literature, um, right? You know, and seeing those kinds of parallels, I, I think it's a, it's a very fun, right? Because you get yeah. to see patterns and structures uh, in texts. Um, and so, anyways, that the that's kind of that's literary theory. Did you well, so did you take I mean, any literary theory courses? Well, I don't know. So, what were my courses with Bracken and Karen Ball? Oh, yeah. I mean, those would have been kind of in the literary theory. Oh, I see. No, no, but they, mine was critical theory. Right. Which, I mean, it all kind of overlaps a little bit, right? Critical theory, uh, and it's been a while, but I think critical theory technically gets its, uh, literally, it's most connected with the Frankfurt School, which was a group of Marxists um, writing kind of post-World War II. Mm -hmm. And, and, doing similar kinds of analyses, uh, sometimes of texts, but also of uh, sort of political 
realities, right? Yeah. Um, so, so maybe yeah. I'm gonna see if I can remember something. So, there's a Marxist thinker. I I don't know if he was a part of the Frankfurt School or just a precursor. Could his name be Bergson? Uh, Bergson. Yeah. Bergson. So okay, yeah. well, I'll tell so, you. I'll tell yeah. you. No, I'll tell. Not a Frankfurt so, School, but. Not Frankfurt School. So he he was the one who emphasized this, the way in which ideology becomes naturalized so that the current structure uh, of the current power structures are the people who are have the power propagate the the ideology that suggests that this current structure is natural. And so, um, and so highlights how uh, ideas are actually part of the mechanism that maintains the status quo. Oh, and that's Bergson? No, I don't know. Oh, no. okay. My, it uh, sounds, it sounds like, um, it does sound more like uh, Frankfurt School. Okay, yeah. Um, like, you know, so Frank, people who are associated with the Frankfurt School include, uh, Theodore Adorno yep. and Max Horkheimer um, and uh, uh, Jürgen Habermas, I think, was initially affiliated with them and then he became their enemy. Um, oh. <laughs> there's lots of that in, in literary course. theory. Honestly, uh, you know, the the real things that you want to learn about with literary theory is just the, the background kind of like, I'm sure, and I, I think there are all sorts of um, uh, like books that have been written about the kind of politics and the dramas of these strong personalities, yes. you know, all trying to kind of like push and pull each other. And I think it would be horrible to actually live in that world. Um, but unless you were like an angry person who liked fighting, <laughs> I guess that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a lot of them might if have really you did, in. Then you liked um, it. So, so critical theory and literary theory, they like, yep. they overlap with uh, psychoanalysis, right? Which is not like it's psychoanalysis is a therapeutic uh, discipline mm -hmm. um, and also a, I mean, it's a, I, I would guess that the main place it gets studied in the academy is either in theory schools, like like what the, the place that I did my PhD had a, um, a, a theory center that, mm -hmm. that was sort of inter interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. um, and then in literary, literary, like English classes is the other yeah. place, right? But right. even that is, I would say it's getting less and less. Right. Um, theory in general, like kind of high theory, which would be include things like deconstruction and psychoanalytic approaches to texts that I think is kind of waning pretty yeah. significantly. And what's replacing it? Uh, more cultural approaches to texts. Oh, yeah. Now, that being said, I've been out of the academy for almost 10 years now. So I don't right. know. I have no mm -hmm. idea what the most recent thing is. Right, like, right. When I left, for sure, cultural studies was was very big. Uh, I think I still get job ads every once in a while just because I'm on different um, listservs. Sure. Yeah. And it looks like, like kind of intersectional politics. Yeah. That, that tends sense. to be fairly... Yeah kind of common as a what people are looking for yeah um, so it hasn't gone it hasn't gone back to sort of classic literary criticism no um but anyway sorry this is going way off topic but, but we've got psychoanalysis we've got literary theory and we've got 20th century continental philosophy yeah and we've got marxism marxist kind right. of theory yeah um so those are all kind of this group of ways of thinking about things and over so we've mentioned a few names that are kind of related to different intersections of those those different disciplines, like Slava Zizek. Yep. Um, you know, Slava Zizek is a Hegelian. Um, uh, he writes about Heidegger as well. He writes about uh, who, both of those are 20th or well, not 20th century, but they're continental philosophy traditions. Uh, and I'm not saying this to you because you know this, obviously. Well, no, but... I mean, I don't know. So no, I think I think. Uh... It's it's never it's always okay to underestimate how much I know. So, I'm just trying to I'm just yeah. trying to remember little details, but yeah, keep going. Yep. Well, and yeah, feel like chime in because I'm I'm what I'm trying to get to is the book 
that has yes. our, our name in it. And I right. want to kind of have a good situatedness for that book. Um, but yeah, so I, yeah. I think I mentioned, and I wish I remembered what I believed the, uh, in one of the episodes I said, and this thing is what can reunite the analytic and continental traditions. So maybe just to kind of speak to that. So Jeff yeah. mentioned continental philosophy, and I wish I remember what my point was that was supposed to reunite those two traditions. But at a certain point, um, uh, the analytic tradition split off. There was kind of a divide. And so the analytic tradition was- uh, Is it also England. called the Anglo-American tradition? Yeah, exactly. Is that the, the Anglo same? I, I, I think so, yeah, okay. versus the continental, which is the continent of Europe, right? And so the, and I've always described the difference of those two actually in an attempt to simplify it, say the analytic tradition is interested in truth, so they will spend a lot of time saying, uh, here, the statement, the cup is on the table. How would we determine if this was true or not? And so truth and fal falsity, regardless of whether it's interesting right. <laughs> versus the continental tradition uh, where they, I feel like they talk more about meaning. And uh, so, uh, which obviously is related to truth but has the undertones of significance or something uh, yeah. or meaningful. Yeah. It's, it's almost like uh, analytic is truth, whether or not it's interesting, yeah. and the continental is interesting, whether or not it's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's um, yeah. The only thing worse than being famous is not being famous. <laughs> it felt like an Oscar Wilde kind of... Uh, <laughs> Yes, Thanks. totally. And and in terms of the split, so I was actually just thinking about that, I guess, when you said Hegel, because I feel like Hegel is almost their last common touchstone where at Hegel, yeah. the analytics said, okay, we've had enough of this. Yeah, I and can then, see that. Um, but yeah, so prior to him, like both of them would have some claim on Kant, yeah. something like that. Yeah. And would something like, I remember the small amount that I've read of Kant like when you're when you're reading when you're flipping through i'm not going to pretend that i've even remotely read any part of critique of pure reason but yeah. one of the things that turned me off of critique of pure reason and made me think i am never going to be able to get through that is like the really specific like uh it is almost scholastic like attribute uh like discussions of objects in terms of like they're breaking them down into their component parts and and trying right. to understand okay what is uh you know something has to occupy space and yes. it has to like those kinds of questions seem to me more uh analytic sure yeah than continental which does sort of care about that as well i think but you know someone like uh Schelling, who is uh after hegel but and is responding to hegel he's a german romantic philosopher you know yeah. he's talking about like the ungrund of being right the right. unground un and the yeah. and the uh, abyss of freedom and like like for, there's a poeticism to continental philosophy that i think isn't always there in analytic is, is wittgenstein analytic he i would uh, yeah wittgenstein is analytic okay but so the issue is i almost feel like we have to say a bit about what these people say which will be maybe embarrassing for us to try it's and gonna do. be super embarrassing since we okay. weren't planning to do it Yes. So, so, so hot seat. With, this is the hot seat. Okay. Hot so, takes on continent on continental analytical philosophy. Attempts to make it so that names have some meaning associated sure. with them. So uh, Kant wrote a book, not the prolegomena, the critique of pure reason. And the subtitle, I think, is something to do with uh, limiting reason to make room for faith, which is okay. actually quite an interesting, you know, recognizing that that's a bit of what he's doing. And he's very influenced by Hume, who was uh, a great writer and a skeptic. And yeah. he showed how all of our various ways of knowing things are pretty insufficient, right? So, and so, uh, yeah, in, in the treatise of human nature, book one, but book two gives us a solution. So go tell us book one. Oh, no, no, no. If we're talking Hume, you have to go. I was working on Kant. Oh, oh, well, okay. The great thing about Hume is that 
Um, and his, the the skepticism that he explores in in Treatise of Human Nature, which was not a bestseller, it it like didn't do well at all. And he's probably better known for uh, a, a kind of update on the Treatise of Human Nature called es- "Essay on Human Understanding," I think is what it's called. Um, I think I think yeah. I think, and there and there's yeah, a few other ones. Yeah. He he was a sure. es- like es- his essays are very well known, and yeah, uh, I think he has a big critique of miracles as well that that uh, C.S. Yeah. Lewis went on to kind of respond to. But um, he says, you know we don't know anything, right? Like life is completely dark and mysterious. And we're like sailors in a ship on an ocean in the, in the, the worst storm of all time. And there's no way that we can find a foothold. And yeah. He, and he descends into this radical Pyrrhic skepticism. And, and so, so one of the things philosophers tend to rely on a lot is logic. And yeah. I like, I like actually maybe talking a bit about logic just because this is a word that actually gets thrown around a lot, right? And we still talk about something being logical or not logical, right? So um, logic has kind of very clear rules. It's a lot like mathematics, right? Where you can prove things. And so Hume says, you know, asks us, how do we know that the sun is going to come up tomorrow, right? Yes. And logic, there's no mathematical logical rule that says just because it's happened every other day right so logic is like um all crows are black that bird is white therefore that bird is not a crow right now right so that's logically sound meaning the the logical reasoning in it is uh is good, but it's not necessarily valid because that requires that your assumptions are also true. Yes. So saying yeah. all crows are black, that might not be true. So the logic there is sound, but the argument is not necessarily valid. So what he suddenly kind of, he does has some good points in which he highlights that our empirical experience of things is not actually... Yeah logical evidence it's not airtight right and so the sun won't necessarily come up tomorrow and then and my favorite one is cause and effect yeah has no evidential basis in logic it's just something that like and you don't even see it happen you see one thing happen so and then you see the next thing happen yes and so and this uh, is a huge uh debate in the period about right. necess- okay. necessitarianism and uh, and the whole role of contingency, uh, which is it's right at the same time that that sort of probability theory comes on the scene. Oh, interesting! Um, it, it's quite an interesting. Uh, there's a guy named Ian Harding who wrote a book on the history of probability. Yeah. Uh, that is, I don't remember the name, but I'll throw it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, but the thing I love about Hume is that yep. yeah, he says these things right, and he's like, you know, die in despair. Look yes. at this. There's no way that we can know. We don't. Yep. We can't. We can't know. Yeah. And then book two comes along, book two of the treatise of human nature. And yeah. he says, and so I go out and uh, go have dinner with my friends and I go play billiards yes. and I go uh, drink and smoke and socialize and have sympathy with other, other people. Yes. Um, and he says, that's the basis of existence. Yeah. Right. The basis of, of living in the world is, uh, is sympathy. And that's where he actually oh. introduces sympathy as mm. this core uh, philosophical concept that Adam Smith later takes up and sort of runs with. I feel like my teacher explained it to me that the basis of human existence was billiards, billiards <laughs> and smoking. I don't know that well, I got that. Is that the, the same? Sympathy. Is that Robert Birch? No, that was actually, um, oh no, Professor Schmidt, I think. Oh, okay. Anyway. I could, I, um, yeah, when uh, I was going occasionally, or I was going to the Western Canada philosophy oh, conferences. Oh, cool. And so would occasionally run into her there. And um, of course, she didn't remember me, but I once went to a party at Dr. Birch's house and she was there and we had a long, drunken conversation. <laughs> and uh, I still remember it fondly. And she explained to me why some of Descartes' arguments that sounded stupid to me were actually quite uh, uh, clever, but uh, I mean, it's so, <laughs> nice. It's, um, nice. so 
Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so, so he, David Hume yeah, and... undermines all of everybody's sense of reasoning. And so then uh, basically Kant comes along and says, okay, what he said is true. Yes. We can't know anything in and of itself mm, nice objectively, one. right? Uh, we can't know things for sure. Uh, but he says there is, but but what has to be true mm -hmm. just based on our ability to think about things. And so he's saying at this point, um, I'm not even talking about reality, you know, whatever that would be. He actually calls it the noumenal. Yes. Versus the phenomenal. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the phenomenal, right? The phenomenons that we experience are the things of our day to day and our experience. And so Kant says, okay, let's just talk about our experience. And based on that, uh, as Jeff said, you, we can't even conceive of something that is not exist in space and time. So this has to be true. Uh, at least of our experience and how we think about things. Right. So instead of talking about the world in and of itself, he starts talking about our experience and he highlights what we can, what we can deduce and what we can't. Yes. And, and then says, okay. And then on these things that we can't deduce, this is where there is room for faith. And so it's interesting that he, he talks about what we have moral sense this is an example of one of his kinds of arguments and if we are to be to live consistently with those mm -hmm. emotions either we can call those emotions somehow lies but at the same time i mean he's he's not he's no longer talking about truth and falsity he's talking about our experience so if we're going to make sense of that right yeah. how what, is this a what, categorical imperative uh no, that's not where I was going. Okay. I was just going to say he talks about like <clears throat> what would we have to what would have to be true in order to kind of make sense of our moral uh intuitions. Right. And um and so one of those things has to be Oh no. Yeah, it gets in my my explanation of his argument is going to sound so bad, right? So it'll make him sound laughable. But and and this isn't <laughs> I'm actually not picking his best argument, right? I'm just kind of picking one that was interesting in that uh when we're thinking about like justice and consequence and that um Oh, no. Anyway, he, he has some kind of clever argument for believing in the eternal importance of our actions. Oh, interesting. And, um, and, and that that's kind of necessary to even make sense of the concept of justice. Right. Um, and he, he does, and that's okay. So that's one of his worst arguments. And yeah, I, I, I should his stuff I on aesthetic judgment is, yes. is quite interesting, right? Oh yeah, that's um, some of my favorite. Actually. And I, I mean, again, it's been so long since I've read any of it or yeah. looked it up or anything like that. And, uh, but, but one of the things I really like is that when you talk about something like the Kantian sublime, yep. right? The experience of the sublime, yep. which people have been wondering about and thinking about since Longinus, right? Since like the Greeks, and uh, or maybe he's Roman, I don't remember. But anyways, you know, thousands of years, people have yep. been wondering about it and thinking, what's this experience of encountering something that and describing it as sublime, right? And what Kant says the experience is, is you look at a mountain, right? You're at the bottom of a mountain and you look up and you're just like overwhelmed by that sight of the mountain, yep. right? Overwhelmed yep. by it. And you would think that that's the experience of the sublime, but actually the experience of the sublime is realizing somewhere, right? This isn't necessarily a, a, a conscious realization, but realizing that you have actually captured within the structures of your own mind, this experience of, of transcendence, right? Mm. The transcendent is captured within the experience of sublimity, right? So mm. it's not like you are, you've been like struck down mute and you're insane for the rest of your life. It's yeah. actually an, ex an encounter with something that is for sure greater than you are, but yes. you've actually captured it 
your right, mental right. your mental processes have been able to capture it with within it. I, I'm probably not explaining that way. No, right, no, no. But, that's good. That's good. And, and that's so the, just, again to say that you're not actually the noumenal experience of the mountain is inaccessible to you. Yeah. The phenomenon of the mountain uh, is uh, the the sublime experience is actually the experience of your own mental capacity mm, mm, of your mm. own like uh, and I don't think mental is necessarily the right term. It's not like you're processing it in your mind but it's your uh capacity to encounter the mountain yeah it's interesting because we think about like we think about capacity mental capacity sounds like capability right right but yeah. maybe more capacity like how much capacity is in this empty container right yes it's like, just capacious, like capaciousness yes right? exactly. like it's like it's you like... walk into a empty cathedral right and you look yes. up and the cathedral's humongous I, well, and I mean, and even in your mind, so much can fall in, you know, yes. it's yeah. like, there's so much that can be in it. And it's not like, oh, you know, look how clever you are. It's yes. like, wow, what a thing is happening. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I guess on a more... Okay, we better go. We better move to. This to is good. Hagel. This is actually good. Oh, yeah, well, I guess we're at Hegel, and yeah. <laughs> well, no. Oh. So, but I can do Hegel quickly. I okay. can do Hegel quickly. Yeah. So, uh, so I mean, the best is so Hegel really likes um a lot of Kant, and and Kant's process uh, is called antimonies, where he has so he has ideas of determinism and ideas of free will. Right. These are both. Uh, kind of things that seem to be a part of our experience. And so he's always trying to find a third way through sort of these mm. syntheses of these two different ideas. And so uh, Hegel likes a lot of this, but he says, look, you, you don't have access to the noumenal and you're just going to give us information about the phenomenal. If you want to know about daily, you know, things of daily experience, go take a cooking class. We're doing philosophy here. <laughs> and so uh, he instead notes that he Except suggests- that he said that in German. Yes, of course. They were all, everyone, everyone smart spoke German back then. Yeah, that's right. So then he- uh, he takes this process, this kind of of the antimonies, right, and the and ex sees it throughout history and kind of traces. And so this is actually this is an interesting question. So uh, he traces history, and in some sense he means little literal history, and in some sense he means the process of the development of consciousness. Yes. Yeah. And, so, and, and, and spirit and spirit. It's right. actually Event, spirit, yes. capital S spirit, which is, I've never quite understood spirit with yeah. the capital S uh, Geist, right. Is, is his term. Yeah. But it's, it's consciousness, I think is um, within spirit. Like spirit yes. is larger than consciousness. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So spirit and yeah. And uh, so he, he traces um, this long, this kind of different ways of understanding the world. Yeah. And he shows how within each of these, they, uh, they fall apart because of internal contradictions. So, yeah. I mean, he starts with this notion of um, some basic, this idea that your sensory perception is totally trustworthy. Mm -hmm. And you just have immediate sensory access to exactly what the world is like, right? And then he brings up these examples of how, you know, when you see a straw in the thing of water, this probably isn't his, when you put your straw into a can of Coke, he says in German, <laughs> uh, and shine a bright light, you see the, the straw appears bent, and yet that contradicts your other so right he he goes through and then so then he says this is the next step this is the resolution to that this is the resolution to that um and then he and, also has a very famous important which is the, bit. the dialectic is that yes where that's you're the dialectical to? process yeah. exactly we're right yeah. so um uh and that is so you have this one one thing and then you have other uh something else that contradicts it evidence potentially that contradicts it so I would suggest it's very similar to the scientific process in which you mm. have a theory that explains the evidence mm. and then more evidence is brought to bear that doesn't fit with the theory. So then you need to have a new theory. 
that explains. Well, and see, I wonder if it's exactly it's it's uh, the restlessness of the negative. Yeah, uh, is is the dialectic, and I mean, so for example, I have I used this example before of hippies. No, hippies tell, tell me to yuppies to hipsters. Okay, yes. So I, I think that I don't know if this works as an as a explanation for the dialectic, but you have hippies, right? Yeah. These people in the sixties. Yeah. Uh, they have their own history as well. Yeah. But eventually, the hippies, um, uh, through all sorts of different things, disillusionment with the government, whatever, they're actually negated by the next term in their historical development, which are the yuppies, right? Yep. The people who were hippies who went on to basically, maybe they became yippies first. I don't remember what yippies are, but you know, hippies, they become yuppies when they get money, right? They get tons of money. They start making tons of money. They get co-opted by uh, capitalism, yeah. not the kind of capitalism we were talking about before, but like <laughs> the capitalism that we all hate. The, the the hippies get co-opted by the yuppie or by they become the yuppies yeah right so the the positive term gets negated and then but so when you say the, the, the yuppies become the uh through the dialectical process the yuppies become the hipsters they become they they continue to harbor those somehow the the uh the deep set desire for kind of um, meaningful connection to product uh, and meaningful connection to the world gets sifted through the screen of the yuppies and become the hipsters because the hipsters are cap like capitalist or consumerist, maybe more specifically, they're consumerist in the same way as the yuppies are, but they have that sort of craft orientation that the hippies have. And so right. the dialectic, you know, continues. Um, right. But I guess, I mean, and, and so that's like your, um, the, the dialectic. Yeah. So antithesis, thesis, antithesis. Synthesis, synthesis is one, is one kind of dialectic. I don't remember if that's Hegel's dialectic though. Right. Okay. So, I mean, in, in that description that you just said, you have hippies, right? Yeah. Who uh, then have additional experiences. New evidence is brought to bear, right? And this, so they have a particular theory about the hippie theory about how to live. And yeah. that's based on the experiences that they've had so far. Then they have new things that come to light. Yeah. And this, and then they say, okay, you know what? Actually, this, I now have a new theory about how to live based on that. And I would suggest that is the scientific model, right? right. That is, um, you have a theory, then more, uh, you, there's more evidence is brought to bear, new things come to light. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you, your old theory now does not appear, it no longer appears sufficient to, to, to fit with everything you right. now know. As long so as it continues to be carry through. I don't know if that is what happens in science. Like that that first, you know, theory A, theory the mm -hmm. thesis theory, does it as it is uh negated, mm -hmm. does the outcome of it still like uh sort of the third term. Mm -hmm. So if you have mm -hmm. term 1, term 2, term 3. Yeah. You no, know, term 1 is negated by term 2. Term 3 is the negation of term 2, which is the which recovers some of term one or or right well so i mean so 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 theory one may not survive very well in science but data set one does okay right yeah right so because theory the the you know so you have your first theory this may be where it breaks down the the analysis maybe maybe yeah. but if, i like it if, i like this yeah except that i'm not uh yeah, I guess I, maybe I don't know. It's because well, well the main the other than spirit, the main word for in Hegel is absolute, the absolute, yeah. right? And mm -hmm. so it's it contains all things, yeah, right. And so, but it contains all evidence could be would be the scientific, right? Which I don't know that he would buy into because you know just because something is a data point doesn't mean that it's like 
all things doesn't just mean data points. It also means all forms of consciousness and all cultural, uh, right. And I'm, I'm not, I, frameworks I can't, I can't, whatever, right? like, I can't, I can't speak to that. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know Hegel well enough. Th- but, there's um, a magical mystical edge to he- Hegel, I think. Um, yeah. I mean the, yeah, there's a lot of different readings of Hegel as well. That's true. Yep, yep, for sure. Yep. Yeah, for sure. So Marx, with, for example, has an interesting reading. Right. Well, so yeah. So an interesting part of Hegel, maybe the most famous part of Hegel is the master slave dialectic, mm. which is just uh, a very influential on Marx. And so he has this, I, he talks about how there's this kind of moment of confrontation between yeah. two, two people or, you know, or two minds or two spirits or something of the sort. Um, and, uh, and one of them comes out uh, dominating the other and so uh, and becomes the master. So one of right. them ends up submitting to the other. But and so right now, you know, it's this kind of obvious kind of point of struggle. But what's interesting then is he says that they everybody is desirous of recognition from the other, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, the master, you know, in his conquering wants recognition as the conqueror, Mm -hmm. but the recognition of the conquered no longer counts for him, Mm. right? Because he sees them as lesser and so finds no satisfaction in their recognition. Not to mention maybe they're not going to be really recognize him, validate him anyway. Whereas the, the slave who is then forced to labor and the labor finds their own. Um, I mean, this is not this is not a good explication of he- of Hegel, but um, they kind of recognize their own power and their own self worth right. yeah. in their creative capacity, right? So, yes. um, whatever this the master takes from them, they have made, right? Yes. And so, um, this is actually right. Uh, you're going. Uh, there's consciousness and then as the slave is um, uh, humbled yeah you get the self-consciousness right Right. and then and then and then which then becomes this kind of uh, uh, a sense of identity comes from from this whereas the the master does not have identity independent of the other of yes. their slaves or somebody is still seeking recognition from others. Anyway, yeah. in that story, which uh, that's great, that was good. Yeah, and, and you can good. well, and so and in that you can see a bit of how um, how Marx uh, takes him, and so Marx, yeah. of course, uh, he take he likes the idea of the dialectic, but he sees it as a purely material process. Yes, and he kind of attempts to get all the ideas out of it and says that. Um, the process of history is a process of um, physical things and the means of production become the driving force between what shapes society. Yeah. And you see um, the same kind of drive towards the absolute yeah. in the withering away of the state and the rise of the proletariat, right? Like those yeah. sorts of uh, ways of thinking about kind of the utopic vision of Marxism yeah. have really strong roots, I think, in, in Hegel. In, and right. in a critique yes. of Hegel. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And so in, um, anyway, so at Hegel, that's where we have the split of where the analytics say, right. no, we're, we, we are going to buy more into this empiricism. We're actually, I mean, arguably, we're going to uh, dig into the, the shadows of the cave, right? Right. That we're going to uh, study experience and what, uh, what is the phenomenal of our lives, um, which uh, somehow they seem to make very, they manage to make very boring at the same time, <laughs> despite the amazingness of huh. experience. It's mostly yeah. just dirt, apparently. <laughs> the cave. This cave is not as exciting as we thought it would be, but um, at least we're not fooling ourselves into thinking we could get out of the cave. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
the continental tradition goes on yes. um, through Nietzsche, I guess, Nietzsche. would be the next big name, maybe. Yeah, Kierkegaard simultaneously. Kierkegaard, yes, right? Kierkegaard. Um, Kierkegaard, who is both a Hegelian and a critic of Hegel. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yes, in a weird way. Yeah, um, yeah totally. And um, uh, I, I don't even really know exactly where to trace it from. Then, I mean, I mean, from, I from Nietzsche, I think you do go to people like Bergson like Henri yeah. Bergson, you actually start getting a lot more of French uh, writers. Yep. Yep. Um, and you'd have the phenomenologists like Husserl and uh, and then Husserl goes to Heidegger. Is uh, is Bergson before Husserl? Bergson is like, I think the early 1900s. So they probably overlap. I don't really know. Yeah. I don't know either of them very well. Right. Um, okay. I did own a book by Husserl and I own a book currently by Bergson. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> no. Yes. Uh, yeah, no, that's okay. And but um, uh, so yeah, so I mean, I think from Nietzsche, it's interesting thinking about Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, who never yeah. knew each other, but knew yeah. of each other, apparently, yeah, or at least, uh, yeah, I've heard that at least um, Nietzsche knew had been told of Kierkegaard's writing. Yes, he said, Oh, there's this guy who in Denmark, who's doing a very similar thing to you, except without the death of God bit. Right. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Nietzsche always makes me like feel like sad because yeah. he has he, there's that uh, there's like that scene of him at kind of when he just before he goes like crazy and, and yeah. uh, mute. Yeah. Uh, he sees a horse being whipped in the streets. Yeah. And he, he just is weeping and goes out and kind of hugs For, it, throws, throws himself him, in front, throws yeah. himself between the whip and the horse. Yeah. Like what a powerful uh, image, you know, like the, I know, I don't know, Nietzsche, Nietzsche, uh, it's nothing Nietzsche couldn't teach you, you know, <laughs> that's the, <laughs> no, but yeah. he, he's such a beautiful writer too. You he know? is, and, he's, he is a beautiful writer and yeah, no, he makes me sad as well. I suppose. I mean, um, yeah, partially I know he never, he always felt like nobody liked his ideas enough. And like, right. especially the ladies, he struggled with the ladies. <laughs> was that he mustache? Was, it was the he, mustache, Nietzsche. It wasn't actually just the mustache. It was all the stuff that gets caught in the mustache. Oh yeah. So <laughs> yeah, gross. Yeah, yeah. So gross. Um, yeah. But, and then, and then of course, yeah, the, there are just certain points of him where like, so I like a lot of what's in there. But then I think it's like most of his later works where it just starts to be uh, a little uglier. Oh, yeah, in for terms sure. Of like, yeah. And it's hard. Like, I, I remember um, uh, I read, I think, an introduction to the will to power, mm -hmm. which is like a collection of stuff that his sister put together. And his yeah. sister was a hardcore anti-Semite. Okay. Um, and so sure. sadly, she was the one who kind of maintained his legacy right like after mm. he went off mm -hmm. the deep end um and so and then yeah basically made it so that his ideas were very co-optable by the nazis um right and and it's there right like the thing is is yep. he liked wagner too right he, he loved wagner yep. and so a yep. lot of his ideas do although they had a falling out oh right okay yeah, yeah. they did have a, they did have man a it, out, yeah. birth of tragedy <laughs> might be my favorite piece of his that i've read and i haven't read lots of nietzsche but the birth of tragedy uh and the spirit of music i think is the the full it's amazing oh yeah but that one's super early right yeah really early oh yeah, yeah. the gay science has awesome stuff oh okay that's great i we should do the gay science oh my goodness because um yeah so i have this book that i have started writing it's yeah. a novel yeah wow um, cool and it's a it's a parody do you got do you know god's not dead the the movie uh ish yeah okay so it's a hilarious movie <laughs> yeah i'm sure it hilarious. is hilarious yeah. it's so sad uh but it's really really um uh easily par parodyable um yes and what i want to write i i currently the the title i feel kind of weird because i i don't usually like talking about stuff i'm writing but the the current title for this novel is god's not not dead um and uh <laughs> and it's going to be about a guy um so the main character in god's not dead is a guy named uh josh wheaton yeah um his last name is wheaton like wheaton college which is a christian college in in the states <laughs> uh -huh. so this book is about chris liberty uh which is liberty university is another christian university in the states um and chris liberty uh is friends with josh josh wheaton josh wheaton okay okay um 
and uh, and in, he goes into the same class because in this class in the movie, uh, the prof comes mm. in and he says, uh, he says, "All right, everyone, I want you to write on this piece of paper, God's not dead, and submit uh, it to me uh, with your signature." <laughs> God's not dead. Or sorry, God is dead. God, God is, is dead. dead. Yeah, yes. God is dead. Um, you know, that's what I care. Like, I don't want to talk about God in this class. I've had too many horrible experiences. And uh, so I want you to write that down. That's all we're going to do. I'm a sad and bitter man. Yeah, and I, and, yeah, okay. But I also have a secret backstory, which you're yes. going to find out about in this movie. Anyways, that's yeah. what happens in the movie, right? And in yeah. the movie, it's all just persecution complex, uh, you know, and then Joss Wheaton is going to, or Josh Wheaton, whatever his name is, is yeah. going to like fight back, right? Yeah. And he gives this amazing PowerPoint presentation, which converts the prof. Oh man! Hit by a car. Uh, sorry to spoil it, but he gets killed at the end. <laughs> <laughs> but don't worry, guys. He repented. It's brutal. Anyways, yeah. it's a brutal movie. Um, yeah. And the uh, Newsboys does the soundtrack, which is just an abomination. But don't worry, it's not the original Peter Furler Newsboys. It's uh, Michael Tate. Um, yeah. Anyways, who uh, no one likes anyway. I, I, it's just so sad. It's so sad. He was he was oh. great with DC Talk, but sorry, this is a super rabbit hole. Anyways, the so, novel. It's, it's funny. In this novel, what I want to do is I want uh, him to be like. Uh, actually, we're not going to talk about God in this class. The prof says, we're not going to talk about God in this class. If you want to talk about God, you can talk about it in religion or in a philosophy of religion, you know, yeah. a full yeah. 401 or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it usually, we just don't have enough time to talk about it here. Yeah. Uh, so don't bother, right? And we in the same situation, Joss is like, see, I told you, right? But Chris is also a Christian and he'd heard what the prof said. And he's like, oh, I don't think he actually is anti-God or anything like that. I think he just doesn't want to talk about it. So <laughs> then the the whole his in the the main project that they have to do in this class is a reading journal. Yeah. And they're all writing different things, you know, and and Joss is planning on writing something on the greatest philosopher ever, C.S. Lewis, or uh, or maybe Alan Plant <laughs> or uh, uh, Alvin Plantinga. Yeah. Um, but what about Wittgenstein? Well, yeah, exactly. Or or uh, Enscom, or you know, there's yeah, all sorts of exactly. And or, or, uh, Hume, and who, or not Hume, but uh, who's the who's the woman who beat C.S. Lewis in and, the? Uh, uh, I'm I think I'm getting her name wrong. Isn't oh, it, is it Anscombe? I thought oh. so. I thought yeah, yeah, so. No, yeah, no, no, you're probably G right. G.E. I, yeah, no, no, that's right. I, I was confusing that with who's the person who made uh, the argument, the ontological argument for the existence of God. Oh, Anselm. 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 Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so, so that's what Joss is planning to do. But Chris is like, because in it, in it, in the in the novel. Sorry, I'm going on way too long about this. But in the novel, the prof says. So just so you guys know, effectively in this class, God is dead yeah. because we're not going to talk about him. Yeah. And uh, Chris is thinking, huh, where did that, where, where does that come from? God is yeah. dead. And so he emails the prof and the prof is like, well, it actually comes from the gay science yeah. uh, by Nietzsche. Yeah. And, uh, and he's, so Chris says, well, could I do that as my reading journal? And so the yeah. whole, that his arc is a lot, is about reading the gay science and yeah. trying to kind of come to terms with uh, you know, what does it mean for God to be yeah. dead uh, in the philosophical sense? Do you, uh, and so it's interesting, right? So it's like, yeah, if the, you know, the God is dead and even that in the philosophical sense, right? So Nietzsche is not making an analytical claim about the truth, truth or falsity of the claim God exists, yes. right? That's not what that whole thing is about. And um and it's totally, that passage is awesome and worth reading. Oh yeah, the madman. Um, I, yeah. I read it at, at well we read it in uh bible school oh yeah i'm sure do we yeah. isaac gave it to us oh yeah so he good. was a great guy so good. um okay so, so we then Nietzsche, go through Husserl, heidegger yes heidegger yeah heidegger who uh we mentioned last episode talking about how um the things reveal themselves to us but we see a surface whatever is revealed always kind of um uh, being always has kind of more about it. So he, in in my mind, one of the things I like about him is that he is not um, drawing a full wall between us and what is, you know, he's not yeah. saying, oh, we can't know anything, shrug your shoulders, give up. He's saying, yes, we have experience and perception of what is real. And it tells us something, not necessarily 
what it is in and of itself separate from me, but it tells me something about it and its relationship to me, with me. Um, and it, and it can show me how much more there is that I don't yes. know. Anyway, so Heidegger, pretty cool. He's got a, a potentially a fair amount of parallels with someone in the analytic tradition who's pretty pretty awesome as well, who is Wittgenstein. Okay, but, um, and I know nothing about Wittgenstein other than what's the thing about silence that he says? Oh, yeah, he says, uh, and so he says, that of which we cannot speak, we must, about that of which we cannot speak, we must remain silent, which is just kind of his acknowledgement. So he actually writes off a lot of the history of philosophy saying, People are just playing weird language games. They're mm -hmm. not really talking about the real world. Mm -hmm. And then he says, you know, like there's all these things that obviously we, you know, we don't have direct access to and we can't, we just can't know about that stuff. Right. And so, um, mm -hmm. and, and we, and we met, we mention him uh, uh, as an alternative to C.S. Lewis as the greatest philosopher. And maybe the problem is he probably, was he a proddy? Probably not. Wittgenstein, he was probably Catholic. I, I don't know, actually. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, because he was a religious man, right? He had okay. faith, which he would, I believe, describe as separate from his reason, right? You know, okay. not, yeah. not as though, not in conflict with his reason, but yeah. just saying there's things I can't know, you know, about. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so then. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so we're uh, at Wittgenstein. We're, we're at Vic getting, well, and we're, we're overlapping with aside. Kristeva now, but Kristeva is not a philosopher. Right. Well, I mean, I feel like so from Heidegger and the um, the who are the guys who you mentioned who are like uh, Kusrol? Well, or, no, no, oh, the, the later, the, the critical later theorist guys, critical yeah. theory guys, the Frankfurt yeah. School. Yeah. So okay, so let's let's think about this. So Heidegger, it, it's strange what happens kind of after Heidegger, and you have this post Heideggerian. Uh, philosophical school which yeah. includes people like Emmanuel Levinas yeah um uh, it would include uh I mean Derrida writes about Heidegger um uh and, and you're starting to get into these weird interdisciplinary uh fields right where people are writing about literature um and like Paul Deman uh, or the the Yale School of Literary Theory, which the Yale School basically take French theory and bring it to to the states. Um, yeah. So you have people like Jeffrey Hartman and J. Hillis Miller and Paul Deman. Uh, all of these people, they're basically the birth of post-structuralism. And this is where we start getting into these places where probably philosophers would say, not a thing or no thanks, not interested, <laughs> right? Right. Um, Although, have, although I think most philosophers would call Derrida a philosopher. I, yeah, I think so. I think yeah, so. That's what he was. That was his, like, that's what the school yeah. was that he was in. For a, for a while, I believe he had the, the, the label of the only famous philosopher. Right, right. Because yeah. <laughs> he, he, he was French and had style and yeah. cool hair. Yeah. Sartre would be another guy that, that yep. uh, so, so that's the thing is that Heidegger, after Heidegger, I, I mean, there are still German philosophers, yeah. but, but French theory, French philosophy starts kind of taking off and you start getting, Bergson is also French. Uh, Sartre is huge. He's, he wins the Nobel prize for literature as well. Mm -hmm. uh, married to so Simone de Beauvoir or not mm -hmm. married together, partnered. I don't know. Yep. Um, terrible, not a nice guy to Simone de Beauvoir. Yeah. Um, uh, who wrote the second sex, um, and, yeah, and um, and awesome. came in second. In do you know this? You know this, I right? Do. Yeah. Uh, what the is second what is smartest it? person? The second. So in France at the time, they had national testing, right? Yes. To kind of for university placement, and Simone de Beauvoir was the got the second highest uh, score in all of the country. Of course, second only to the philosopher who I happen to like even more, Simone Weil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they were the top two, and then Simone so cool. Weil. Simone Weil grew up with this massive inferiority complex uh, from her brother, who was apparently way smarter than her, but he died young, so he never took the test, so we don't know how he did oh, that. But anyway, it's Simone. just like, oh, yeah, I'm sure he was so much smarter than you. She was, she, I actually love her, but she does have a bit of a, like, she was, she was so sensitive, mm. like, 
that she her 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 philosophy can gets a bit um uh oh I don't even know. I don't know how to describe it, but she sometimes starts to sound like a little bit of a whiner, which is oh. too bad. She really is one of my favorites. And so I wanted to like I started to like write an essay on her. Yeah. But then I just became like, oh no, I don't I going she I'm sure she like so she was amazing. She ended up dying because she went to serve in the in the war and was like putting herself in harm's way refusing any extra help because she believed that these other people weren't getting it and so they weren't getting the help so she didn't want the help and anyway beautiful well, she, she was in england right i i think that oh. she she was in england she wanted to she wanted to be back in france but they wouldn't let her go and part of it was that she basically was like well then i'm gonna eat what the rations are in right. France, yeah. but she may have like radically underestimated. Yes. Cause she, I think she starved to death. Yeah. It's something like it's that. It's very anyway. sad. It's a very yeah, sad. So uh, no, I, and I shouldn't call her a whiner. I really just wish, I just remember anyway, super amazing. Yeah. Super cool thinker. Um, and smarter than Simone de Beauvoir. Yeah. And smarter than Simone de Beauvoir, both of whom. Uh, yes. I, I would like to read. There's some, I can't remember what the name of the book is, but Simone de Beauvoir has some really interesting ways of thinking about free will. Okay. Um, and interesting. Anyway, I would, I would like to read more of her. So, so I think, I think what we, cause but we, I, are, oh, we yeah. are, we are, uh, we're, a we're, we're almost at time. And I think what we should do to end this, because this has yeah. been part one of what's in a name. Yeah. <laughs> and the second part I think is, is where we actually talk about Julia Kristeva. Yeah. And, and about some of these ideas, because the thing about the history of philosophy, where we've ended up is we've ended up in France. Yep. And French theory takes I, a whole bunch of interesting ideas like yep. like uh, phenomenological uh, German philosophy, yep. uh, psychoanalysis, which is something we haven't really talked about as much. Yep. And I don't um, think we've have we explained what phenomenology is. Uh, well, then it, it comes out of that idea of the uh, phenomenal versus the noumenal. Right. Yeah. So like, yeah, the this the experiencing your experience, being attentive to your experience and seeing what you can know through it. I feel like I also want to hear you say a little bit more about what post-structuralism is. And that may be something that we end up talking about when we talk It'll about good, what it means yeah. to be a subject in process. Yeah. Because post-structuralism... I mean, the thing about post-structuralism is it very much is more in in the literary vein. It comes it comes after structuralism, obviously, right? Yeah. Structuralism itself gets its sort of uh, it has its roots in anthropological thinking. So okay. people like Claude Levi Strauss, um, who uh, he's right. the guy who basically Derrida kind of told where to go at in oh. in nineteen sixty seven. Yes. Is that the at something like that? Or, something at the like that. Uh, John Hopkins. Yes. And and with the structuralists, are they part of like this modernist idea where, you know, they're they're interested in truth, but they're just kind of saying it's it, there's all these connections and relations and everything's known in relation to something else. And so like truth becomes nearly inaccessible, but it's still what we're interested in. I don't know if I know enough about it. Okay. I have like two books on my shelf here that I could just flip through. I think oh, yeah, structuralism sure. might end up being a separate topic because where I think we need to go yeah. is to the question of language. Yeah. Because language lies at the heart of what it means to be a subject in process. Oh, interesting. And when okay. philosophy starts to pay attention to language, yeah. Um, and Heidegger cares a lot about language, he right? Does. Heidegger is super interested in philology yep. and sort of the history of words and things like that, um, which is why he's very much like the British Heidegger, Owen Barfield, who's also really yeah. interested in words. Yeah. Um, I, I, isn't doesn't he even say the essence of being ultimately is in language? Heidegger? The house of language is, is the house of, or language is the house of being, I think yeah. is his line. Yeah. Um, and then Frederick Jameson, I think is the person who says language is the prison house of, of being. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sounds cool. Sounds cool. That's it's, all. That's what those guys are mostly into. It's like, <laughs> what sounds cool? Um, 
Right. But okay. Once once philosophy and language start to kind of get intermixed, and we we start to get uh, people who are taking Freud's ideas, people yeah. like Jacques Lacan would yeah. be the kind of big one, and Melanie Klein, yeah, and the psychoanal psychoanalytic thinkers, yeah, and are starting to take language and take philosophy and take psychology and trying to see where do these things all come together. That's yeah. when we get to the point where we have to start asking, what does it mean to be a subject? Yeah. And and I think that's maybe the, the topic of our next episode. Okay. That's, okay. That sounds great. So if you want to write to us, what's our email? It our is, email is subjectsinprocess at gmail.com. It's actually subjectsinprocesspodcast at gmail.com. Oh, gosh. Of but it makes it me wonder, does somebody have that other one? I, I couldn't know. get it. I couldn't get it. So oh, okay. Well. So if you want to spam somebody, spam that first email address and yeah. uh, send us interesting questions and thoughts on on uh, at subjects and process podcast at gmail.com. And and let us know like which are your favorite episodes, right? Like what uh, what what do you want to hear from us about? You know, because uh, we're just we'd like to know. You know, the is is these wanderings through the history of philosophy which we've kind of done a couple of times is this good or should we be talking about movies you know what do you right. want to hear yes yeah exactly yeah. cool okay well thanks john yeah thank you jeff talk to you later talk to you soon